0: The Reverend Guy Hewitt is the High Commissioner for Barbados to the United Kingdom, and an Anglican priest. He's been leading the campaign for thousands of members of the Windrush generation to be recognised as British citizens. I spoke to him about the extraordinary progress the campaign has made in the past few weeks, with the government performing a U-turn at unprecedented speed. He told me, What we were in this for was to get justice for the Windrush generation. For me, it's not about recriminations, or even who is at fault. It's about continuing to work forward to find a solution. If you don't already subscribe to The Church Times, you can try 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Guy Hewitt, you wrote for The Church Times on the 13th of April about the the new wave of hostility facing Windrush migrants. When did you first become aware of this situation?
1: We... Got word of this, I would say, about 2015 or so. We were hearing anecdotal stories, but there were stories that were, in a sense, knocking about, but we couldn't verify them. And because of the Data Protection Act here, the Home Office wasn't able to give us any information. I guess the members of our diaspora who were in quandary didn't feel they were able or were hesitant to come through. But Barbados raised this formally with the UK government in 2016. We asked them to look into this matter, but we didn't get a response. And to be fair, I don't think we understood the significance of it until Amelia Gentleman with The Guardian started to do her systematic investigation and reporting on this crisis. And she was telling
0: the stories of individuals who've been affected by this hostile environment policy.
1: Yes, Um, Amelia Gentleman who is an award-winning journalist with The Guardian, picked up this story in the last quarter around October 2017. She started to pick up individual cases, but what she did, which I think really changed the dynamic, is that she got in touch with the Migration Observatory at Oxford University, and they were able to identify the scope of this crisis. That there were up to 57,000 migrants from Commonwealth countries who had arrived in the UK before 1973 and were, but having not regularised their status, they were at risk of destitution, being shut out of the system, possible detention or removal or deportation from this country.
0: That's a lot of people. Were you surprised by that number?
1: I think everybody was astounded by it. I think that moved it from, I would say, an individual or consular matter to a full-blown crisis. And we then started to look into this. Um, when When this was flagged, we then wrote to our capitals and we asked them, well, we tried to make them aware and we asked them for guidance, but as you could appreciate, we being close to the situation were not aware of the situation. So they were even less aware. And that's when I realised that we were going to have to employ a very different strategy to that used by conventional diplomacy or the, the communications through our ministries of foreign affairs.
0: Could you give us an idea of what that strategy entailed?
1: Well, I mean, t- to do that, I have to give a bit of background. I am a non-career di- diplomat. I've never worked in, in foreign affairs or in diplomacy before. I've worked with the government, but never before. I've had a very eclectic career, including being an uh, Anglican priest. And, and I've always lived according, according to social gospel. So when I got this assignment, I, I tried to figure out how do I bring all of these bits together? And what I, I came across was a concept or an approach in international relations developed by a Canadian, former Canadian diplomat, David Copeland, which is called Guerrilla Diplomacy. And what it really is, is about rather than people sitting back in offices and in embassies, removed from situations, writing memos and writing you no know, verbals to capital and to, to governments. This was about getting on the ground and engaging the public, getting into cultural spaces, public spaces, and finding a way of engaging the agenda, the needs, the perspectives of your country through many different channels and that in a sense appealed to me that was going to utilize what i think some of my core skill sets were in terms of being inclusive in terms of being a good network and a good communicator in terms of being preferring to be on the ground and leaving from the bottom than from necessarily on lofty heights and i was able to to utilize that approach in how we try to deal with the Windrush um, crisis. And and for what I have come to say, we were able to create a perfect storm.
0: Your article was published in the Church Times on this on, on the 13th of April. The following week, things really changed rapidly, didn't they? What, what happened?
1: The policy you turned that the UK government did, in less than two weeks of this becoming an issue, was for me a modern-day miracle. The... Home Select Committee, Home Office Select Committee, whom I met with yesterday, said it was unprecedented for a government to take such a drastic and radical change of position in such a time frame. And this is where I really felt like the hand of Providence was guiding us. But what we were able to do was really to engage the hearts of the the Britons, of this country. And we were able to do that by what I consider to have been forging a coalition of the willing, of bringing together for the first time all of the Caribbean High Commissioners to speak as one, to work closely with the civil society agencies that work on these issues, the Runnymede Trust, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, Praxis, even the, the Council for the Caribbean, but then working with parliamentarians. And I want to speak specifically about the role of Lord Oosley, who is a crossbencher, who has a phenomenal background in race relations in this country and was, to me, a key advisor and mentor in terms of going forward. But also for me, given my faith, given my adherence to a social gospel, given my role as a priest within the church, it was important to have gotten the Church of England support, the the engagement by eight bishops that I know of who in, went, wrote to the government on this issue, but the countless others in their parishes who spoke to their parishioners about supporting the petition, who also contacted their MPs. It was just a groundswell of people who felt that this was? they were outraged by this situation and called on the government through so many different means to end it. And I think the government had not just a political turn, but truly a moral reawakening. And that is what, with God's grace, brought about, in my opinion, this change in such a quick time.
0: And of course, many of the people affected by this policy are Christians and, and Anglicans. So perhaps their plights were coming to the attention of their parish priests and other people in their congregations.
1: Yes, I, 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 I know. I know of churches whom the vicars told people to go online, join the petition. And we, we were amazed. We got 15,000 signatures in a 24 hour period on the parliamentary petition. In less than 10 days, we had 100,000 signatures and it's still growing. The parliamentary debate is set on Monday and it shows that the will of people, this democracy really has been at work here, that the will of the people, the force of which they demanded something was done, filtered all the way through the system. I want to commend as well David Lammy for being able to get 140 signatures from MPs on this issue across parties this was not partisan this was everyone coming together and saying we have got to do something about this
0: just just going back to when I mean, the guardian was publishing stories about this for months i mean why did that not more quickly lead to the government's u turn i
1: think that a lot of the times well governments politicians understand the importance of being attuned with public perception. In a sense, Amelia Gentleman was a cry of cry in the wilderness. No one was hearing her, and, and I refer to her as the Baptist because I really do think she was the herald for this cause. But, but once people heard, once we became in tune with what she was saying, and, and we start to bring more and more people together, it then became a crescendo. It became a chorus that the government, no government would have dared to ignore the will of popular opinion.
0: Now there's a lot of fighting between the parties now. There's Labour calling for the Home Secretary to resign. I mean, do you have a view on that or are you trying to stay above the fray?
1: I've said to people there, there's a wonderful, a wonderful quote that says, a wonderful saying that says, um, to err is human. To forgive divine. For me, it is that indication that what we were in this for was to get justice for the Windrush generation. And for me, it's not about recriminations or even who is that fault. It is about continuing to work forward to find a solution. I, I recalled the words of, of Nelson Mandela that people of peace must not Think about retribution or recriminations. Courageous people do not fear forgiving for the sake of peace. And this is what I want. At the end of the day, this country must remain as one, unified in solidarity. And I have a very specific and personal feeling about this because I am Barbados' first London-born High Commissioner. I was born in London to migrant parents. One from Barbados, one from India. So I identify with the situation, but I also identify with the need for the United Kingdom to remain united as a society. So I am towards an all for accountability, but I feel it should be done with the generosity of Christian love and forgiveness and understanding.
0: Can I just ask you to say a bit about exactly what's changed since the
1: government U-turn? Well, two critical things, which I think is important. The apology by the government, the apology from the prime minister. And I've said before and I say it again, it takes tremendous fortitude. It's a a true sign of a strong leader or capable leader when they're able to say I was wrong and I am sorry. The prime minister did that. Beyond that, she said, there will be compensation for the damages done to those who were shut out of the system, who lost their jobs, lost their homes, who may have been refused, re-entry into the country, who may have been removed from this country. They are looking to do that. But more importantly, which was, to me, what we wanted was on the 23rd of April, the Home Secretary announced that members of the Windrush generation who arrived here before 1973 will be recognised as British citizens. And for me, it says that they are accepted and they will be treated as Brits, as this is their home, the home that they made for themselves and their family embraces them as one of them. And what we, that's what we were fighting for. Not just their legal status, but the acceptance by the system that these people actually belong. That what they've given their life towards is meaningful, appreciated, and now affirmed. I think there is a wider issue here. Noting that nearly 50 years to the day, we recalled Enoch Powell's River of Blood speech, that there was two days ago the church service for the 25 years, of the murder of Stephen Lawrence and on the 22nd of June we will celebrate the 70th anniversary of the arrival of the Windrush which symbolised the dawning of the new multicultural Britain but the truth is when we look at these and we look at the Brexit vote there is obviously a discomfort in this country on matters of race and migration there seems to be a residue of xenophobia that this country and this society has to grapple with, because there, there's a way that the the battle that goes on, the recriminations that continue, the demands for for great accountability. I think beneath that are people who are hurt, who feel betrayed by a country that they were born in or that they have adopted, that they've given their all to. And I think one of the things, one of the roles that the Church of England, that the Christian community, that the interfaith community could do, is to find a way of reinforcing the love, the togetherness, the solidarity that exists amongst and across all social groups, all racial and ethnic groups in this country because I I was mindful of reading about the issues that that have been going on the debates about anti-Semitism. This country has got to find a way once and for all in the 21st century when we are talking about a, a modern global Britain to be able to put aside all forms of discrimination and move forward as a single people united under one united, one kingdom, which is Great Britain.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.